0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and this episode is all about making space. Making space, that is, in our cluttered lives. My guest is Daniel C., productivity consultant, speaker, and author of a fabulous book, Spacemaker, how to unplug, unwind, and think clearly. I thought I knew all about the impact the digital world has on my life, but I didn't, not by a long shot. Daniel has opened my eyes to the incredible ways technology has shaped my life and yours, the way it's shaped our brains, and where it can all lead if we're not conscious and deliberate in our response. And best of all, he's got some wonderful practical tips to get us started. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Daniel C. Daniel C, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Great to have you on the show, mate. I was just waxing lyrical before we hit record about how high quality a book yours is. It really is top tier, mate. You should be very proud of what you've produced here. The topic is amazing, and we're going to spend the next 35 minutes or so talking about that. But you write brilliantly. You've put the book together really nicely. It's high quality, mate. You must feel really happy how it's turned out.
1: Yeah, look, I'm actually really delighted how it's come about and the outcome of it. It was a very painful process, and I never saw myself as an author. But yeah, it's it's been brilliant to get it out there into the world and hear people's responses.
0: Yeah, you've done a great job. All right, so your book is called Space Maker: How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly. You know, the the title sort of told me what it was going to be about, but it wasn't until I got right into it that I realised just how much our digital world shapes all of those ideas and. Everything that we have to consider in that space that you cover there. Tell me about Spacemaker, the, the idea of Spacemaker. Where did it come from? What are you trying to achieve in this project?
1: Yeah. So, look, I read a quote a number of years ago by a guy called Tom Chatfield. He, was, he is a media author, and he basically suggested that we're entering a new kind of a new world, a new part of human existence where mm-hmm. if we don't intentionally unplug from our devices, we may never, ever be offline. And that really struck me. It was like, what an unusual idea that our normative existence is now on a device and connected through the Internet. And what we need to do in order to be human and to have a rounded, broad existence is actually to unplug from time to time. And that certainly connected with my experience at the time when I read that book. I was in my early 30s, I had young kids, I was building a house, I had two different careers, I was like managing a health service as a physiotherapy manager and I was starting this business and, and I basically burnt out and, and I started to feel totally overwhelmed by my lack of space, my uh, inability to have time for myself to really think deeply and think strategically to enjoy silence and to contemplate on the data in my life the meaning of the events that were happening around me and and I just felt like I was running to stand still and and these were kind of pre-symptoms of what I see everywhere around me now in the digital world uh, and part of it was that I was overcooking the amount of time I spent online and part of it was just I was unbalanced and I ended up experiencing breathing difficulties after a while and I was breathless when I was presenting and then I found myself breathless at the dinner table you know and that technically shouldn't be a stressful event and then i was you know breathless reading kids to my uh, books to my little kids and uh, after all doing all the medical tests you know no surprise i wasn't i didn't have any heart problems or lung problems i actually was struggling with anxiety or just stress related i suppose yeah illnesses and so that was a wake up call for me it helped me start to really invest in the patterns of my life and also to examine questions like what is work what is rest and and what might it look like to have the space I need to really live according to my values? And that's really the, the genesis of when I started thinking about space making.
0: So it's very much a personal mission. Hey, the way that you set out the book is all about the paradigm, you know, the, the arena in which we're, we're operating and living, um, the principles, the truths that we need to understand and come to terms with about ourselves and, and our world, and then the practices. So I'd really like to talk about it in that shape, but I think we should emphasize the, the world in which we're living, the paradigm and then the practices, what we can do about it. You know, and to kick that off, and I'll let you lead this because you're the guy that's written the, the amazing book. I've just been enthralled to read it. I love the quote about that Winston Churchill, that you quoted Winston Churchill and he talked about the fact that we, we shape our buildings, we design our buildings, but after that, they shape us. And one of the examples was Parliament House in uh, the House of Commons in Great Britain, and the fact that it's a rectangular building—you know—it's sort of it's a rectangular room that you can divide in two halves has essentially given us and so many other countries the two-party system. It's sort of stacked, you know. Just it was designed to face them off against Mm -hmm. each other. And then you talked about Kennedy in 1960 and how. TV, the new medium, became so important to the presidential debate. And then you you landed on this quote from McLuhan, the medium, McLuhan, McLuhan. I'll I'll get that out eventually. The medium is the message. And you can think of that in terms of the buildings that we're in. You can think of it in terms of TV. But of course, for you and I and everyone listening, we can think of that in terms of our phone and our iPad and our laptop. Tell us a little bit more about that idea of the medium is the message.
1: Look, I think you should just continue because I think you're doing a better job than me. So (laughs) uh, I love that. But uh, no, look, we often look at technology, okay? So I mean, Cal Newport wrote a great book and you talked about the social dilemma, you know, talking about the insidious design of the tech itself and how, you know, likes and hearts and, and the way in which notifications were built in a way that causes eyeball time and addiction. So the devices we use themselves, Are made to make us want more and more of them which is bad for us okay but but even beyond all of that kind of new design that we see in technology we need to recognize that the habitual use of technology in and of itself changes our thinking and changes our identity and changes the way we understand ourselves and our story because yeah just like you said you know buildings shape behavior And once we immerse ourselves into a physical environment, eventually it changes the way we see the world simply because of our surrounding. And in a similar way, technology is an ecosystem built on beliefs and built on ideas. And those ideas fundamentally shape us as we use them day by day. And one example I give in the book, for example, and this is where the medium is the message. It's not just about what you're watching and what the content is, the, the very the medium of using the tool regularly day in, day out, itself will shape you. The example I use in the book is that, oh, I've forgotten it now. I'm getting, getting ahead of myself. Well, mate, I'll,
0: I'll tell you the example that I love from the book. You might be thinking of another <laughs> one, and it's the idea of TV. I mean, what we watch on TV is, of course, what we all jump to when we think about the impact of TV, but just the process of a family sitting around a TV. So when TVs became widespread, in all cultures, it shifted even the way families sit at the dinner table together. They don't sit around each other and face each other to have conversations. They kind of sit on one edge of it so everyone can see the TV. I mean that has really shaped the way we are. And it and it confirmed the thought that I've long had, the idea of TV coming along and actually shaping the architecture of the way we design our house internally. You know, the idea that a room, you know, at least one room in all of our homes, all the furniture is pointing to that black box and it has that enormous impact. And of course, you can imagine the kind of knock on consequences that we see from and that we've all experienced from a family. Instead of talking around the dinner table, they sit at half the dinner table and watch the box. And when that is multiplied millions of times across families and countries every night, that has enormous impact on the way that we relate to each other, the conversations we do or we don't have. Our relationships with, with each other change. And I reckon you could argue that the digital, the, the, the digital revolution has been even more powerful than the TV revolution.
1: Oh, absolutely. And so what you've talked about here is that the ideas embedded in the television actually shaped human behavior. So that's right. If you put a a television screen in in the center of the room, not only does the family life orientate around that, but it, it distributes power. So previous to the television, it was community leaders and people we knew relationally that were the power base in our lives. But once we nationalized it, well, then the television started to influence us through people that we hadn't yet met, which is why Kennedy won the election over Nixon, because he was great on TV, which is the example that I used, and it changed politics forever. But similarly, like you mentioned, and this is where I was going to go before my brain forgot, but uh, multitasking, which is probably a good example of what I've done to forget. But uh, multitasking is one of the fundamental ideas embedded within new media. The idea that the iPhone can run multiple applications simultaneously and that we can flip from one application to the next, from the weather to CNN to looking at our email you know, to checking, I don't know, what's happening on Instagram. And the device does that incredibly well. The problem is the idea of multitasking then shapes us because the medium is the message and our brains are neuroplastic. So that means that whatever we habitually practice, whatever we habitually do, uh, will inevitably shape us from the inside out. And so technology is organic, not just additive, which means that it is actually changing us from the inside out. And therefore... Is it any wonder that we try to multitask throughout the day nowadays, and this is what we see in the world of productivity, which is my main arena, that people are losing their attention. They move very quickly from one idea to the next, but don't think really deeply about ideas. We're taking on projects in organizations and flipping from one strategy to the next. We're not contemplating the data and the meaning of what's happening around us in organizations And we're really just running to stand still more and more individually and culturally and organizationally. And and that, in many ways, is an outcome of the idea of multitasking that works so well for a device, shaping human behavior in a way that isn't as healthy for us as humans and actually doesn't work at all because we can't multitask. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes
0: perfect sense. And, you know, I'm wondering how much people... Notice this stuff because I kind of feel like I do notice it a very small percentage of the time. Like, for example, when I'm really interested in a thread of news, you know, a story that's being covered in multiple news outlets, um, it might have a bit of meat to it. There's a lot to know. Sometimes I find myself habitually going to read a long form piece of journalism. And there's a part of my brain that thinks, oh, I can't be bothered with this. I'm just going to go and read a few tweets. And if I scan Twitter and get 13 or 15 or 20 people's take on that in two or three lines, that I've fooled myself into thinking that I'll understand that. And I've kind of caught myself realizing that my attention span in some realms of my life has enormously diminished Mm. because I've trained myself in that. And you know you talked about neuroplasticity before, and I love the comparison you made in the book to playing the piano as a kid. And you were committed to the piano in much the same way as I was committed to playing the violin as a kid. Not very much, and that twenty minutes or half hour practice that my parents asked me to do felt like an age. And I would spend so much energy arguing about it rather than just getting it done. But if you think about that as practice and what would have made you a good pianist and me a good violinist if I had have actually done it. But look at all the practice we put in when it comes to using our devices. I, you know, You and I both have professional jobs. We spend a huge chunk of our working day on a device. And then we spend a fair chunk of our personal time on a device, checking Twitter, messaging friends, looking at our WhatsApp groups. We are doing an enormous amount of practice, which is shaping our brains. We are thinking differently about the world. Our brain works differently as a result of the iPhone being invented. Absolutely. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. And we just don't think of it. Can you imagine thinking of your nine or 12 hours or whatever it is per day on the internet as practice in the way you practice a craft or an mm-hmm. instrument? Uh, once you think about it like that, it's it really is quite scary because we are practicing from a neuroplastic point of view. Our brain is being shaped. And if you look at MRIs again, I I'm not great now with kind of, it's been a long time since I've done my anatomy and physiology as a physiotherapist, but the anterior circular cortex, which is part of the brain that is involved in regulating emotions, that literally changes on MRI when people practice the internet a lot, which is now all of us. So, we all practice. Uh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying, cause I, I am not an anti-tech guy. Like my assumption, just like you and I, most of us are online all the time. I mean, I'm. In my Ugg boots right now, talking to you, I've been at home all day having interviews or training people around the world because of this amazing thing called digital technology. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful for how technology shapes my life and the opportunities it brings. But I also am very aware that there are downsides to this. And if we never unplug, this is this goes back to that quote by Tom Chatfield, if we don't intentionally create space in our lives, unplugging and resting deeply as a pattern away from technology we don't assess the loves and longings of our heart and separate ourselves to create some independence from our tools well then we may actually become you know like what elon musk says which is we are all cyborgs now we should just get over it and i'm i'm not i see the benefit of being a cyborg but i'm also a human and mm-hmm. there's something about you know he doesn't sleep <laughs> you know and and uh, i want to sleep you know there's something about being a human that is deeply valuable to me and and should be valuable to us and so therefore we need to rebalance the scorecard of our brain by unplugging regularly and broadening the neurodiversity of what we do Uh, but we also need to unplug for our heart our health and our productivity
0: Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's
1: unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization.
0: And that's where this conversation is headed, Uh, listeners, where we're going to talk about the practices that Daniel suggests in making our lives a little bit more balanced. We we all love digital. we all get a lot of it a lot out of it and i love your inverted u graph that you share in the book but the you know there is a suggestion that we've gone past the point at the very peak of the u for our wellness and our well-being in terms of the technology that we use as a society we're talking about the clutter that we have in our lives largely due to the digital world that we live in and what got me really worried when i read your book of everything that i read it was It was the piece about the iGens that made me most scared. So for those of you who don't know, and I didn't know about three hours ago, iGens are those born from 1995 to 2012. And the reason this concerns me so much is because my kids are even younger than that. My oldest was born in 2013. And get this, the iGeneration do much more stuff. They spend much more of their time making themselves unhappy than any generation before them. They spend much less of their time doing things that make them happy than any generation before them. A thorough body of research has been done to suggest that iGens, kids born from 1995 to 2012, spend much less time interacting with each other. They go to parties less often. They don't even hang out At shopping centers. Not that that's a fantastic activity to be doing, but wouldn't the world be a terrible place when we crave and we look back and go, oh, wasn't it great when kids hung out at shopping centers? (laughs) Igens don't do that because they don't hang out together, because they spend an enormous percentage of their time online and it's making them sad. Tell us about Igens, Daniel, and what can we do about it? And what do I have to worry about? My oldest kid is eight years old. He was born in 2013. If the trend continues, he's going to be even sadder than the iGens.
1: Yeah, look, it's interesting. And I think we can be terrified by it. And, you know, certainly the research isn't all terrible. But I think the connection, you mentioned the inverted U curve, and I actually might go back there because that's a term that might be helpful for people. But if it comes out of this research, so Jean Twenge, a generational researcher in the US, she just looked at these large longitudinal studies. And like you said, her overarching summary as, to why young people are now more depressed more anxious and and struggling you know terribly with suicide. Yeah, with suicide. Yeah. Her summary was that activities throughout all those studies activities that are offline directly linked to happiness and activities which are online, are directly linked consistently, again, with unhappiness. So basically, if you spend more than three hours on new media every day, your suicide risk factors go up. And Instagram and Facebook are hiding their own research. You saw that a few months ago, which is exactly the same as what we're seeing in the longitudinal research. And I really do believe that, you know, in five or ten years... Yeah, in five or 10 years, we will be like, I remember I remember you know hearing that doctors used to smoke in doctor's surgeries in the 1970s. And I'm like, how could they have done that? Surely in the 1970s, they knew it was bad for you, but it hadn't become this normative understanding of how ridiculous that is. And we are absolutely, going, I'm pretty sure we're gonna look back and say the same thing. Why did we give our children smartphones without filters and give them Snapchat when they were 12 years old? How did we not recognize that this adult Medium would shape them in a way that wasn't necessarily for their health benefits over time. Uh, but I mean, that's that's the negative news. But the positive news is that again, we can change our behaviours. And the more that we are aware of the online story that shapes our lives, the more we can influence the lives of our kids and create a positive story. Because it's not about rejecting tech; it's about helping our kids, but also ourselves, experience a broad range of experiences that actually make us happier. And that might be where you know it's worth briefly talking about that curve if that would be okay. Great. So what I looked at from the beginning was what's the connection or the link between productivity and digital technology because I noticed that clearly you need to use technology to be productive. I mean, we wouldn't have survived during COVID, especially if you're in Victoria or New South Wales. You simply wouldn't have survived and been able to work and connect without tech. So You need to be really good at technology nowadays in almost every profession and imagine a graph where the line goes up, more tech, more productive, but then you end up with a plateau where if you continue using the screens more and continue spending more on time, if you continue practicing the internet more and more, your productivity kind of peaks and I call that the productive middle and then like you said, you've got this upside down curve, this upside down U Where if you continue, you know, reaching for your phone first thing in the morning and last thing at the night, if you're always on a screen, even if you're on the toilet, you're somehow checking email. I mean, once you become a cyborg, you basically lose happiness, you lose health, and you actually counterproductively lose productivity because of multitasking, because of sleep debt, because of a whole lot of other things that happen when we just don't spend enough time reflecting on our own thoughts, our own why where we lose our ability to just know who we are at a deep level and the convictions that come from being quiet and contemplative. So so the only way back to the productive middle is to unplug and disconnect as a habit so that when you use tech, you're using it really well. And that is the same for you and I, as well as iGen, as well as whatever we call the generation that comes after that. And my main message when I speak to parents, actually, because I run digital parenting seminars is start with your own habits and your own tech beliefs because we all have a relationship with the online world. And that story that you tell yourself about what technology is and how it shapes your life, that will inevitably change your own behaviors. And if you're constantly on your phone, if you're constantly thinking about what is happening around the other side of the world and can't focus on what's happening right in front of you, that shapes your kids' behaviors more than anything else. And so start with yourself and then have really beautiful wise conversations with your kids so that they can create healthy patterns and behaviors in their own life so that together you can go on a tech journey where you get the best out of the online world, that left-hand side of the curve, but you also unplug regularly as a habit.
0: It's like so many other parts of our life, nutrition, exercise, rest, et cetera, where we know the facts. We know what's good for us. We also know what's really easy and what bad habits we can fall into so easily And some of us do a better job than others. And some of us don't do such a great job of sharing that information with our kids and with ourselves and living a conscious, disciplined life around that information. You know, I've said it on this podcast a number of times when we've talked tech and your book didn't change my mind about this. I have this sort of overall picture of humanity and tech, almost like where a kid with a brand new toy, you know, when your kid gets a brand new toy and they just play with it nonstop for hours, days, could be even a week, but then eventually they kind of mature with their relationship with the toy and it just becomes something else that's part of their life. Mm. Kind of feel like that's us as humanity right now. We have this amazing toy. And remember, for those of us who are midlife, middle-aged, It's only been in the last kind of quarter of our life that this has existed. 2007 was Mm. the first iPhone. They didn't go mainstream until 2010, 2011. And now, of course, 90-odd percent of Australians have one. But we're still like that kid with a new toy and playing with it to an unhealthy level. It hasn't normalized in our life. There's an unhealthiness about the way that we've let our habits sort of gather around this technology, but I feel confident that we'll reach another stage of maturity with that. Is that confidence founded or not?
1: Mm. Look, I hope it is, and I I definitely see the signs of that. So like, I began writing this eight years now. I published last year. So it was a a long burn, and I rewrote the book many times, and there was a real journey for me to to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the paradigm because I realized more and more that unless we shape and change our digital story we'll never change our habits and so I had to reverse the book from a how-to book to a a why and then a how-to book yeah. uh, but when I started writing the book I mean it came out of a blog post I wrote which was why I turn off my phone for a day a week for a digital detox okay mm-hmm. And that made waves. Uh, the radio stations rang me up. I spoke to the ABC and a few others because the idea that you might want to turn off your phone because yeah, technology might be too much was like crazy. You know, this is like mm. only seven, eight years ago. And now with you know, post-Zoom fatigue, post-COVID, like oh, I don't feel like we really need a deep conversation about the fact that we're overloaded with tech. I think most people, if they're really honest, know they're overloaded. Like the entire culture has now moved to that right side of the curve where we're distracted and wired and, and just feel like our brain is changing. So we can't be silent and can't concentrate on reading a book, for example, without wanting to suddenly change tact and, you know, find out what's on the news five minutes later. So I think there's this general awareness that we're struggling with digital overuse. So that's positive. We need a how conversation now. But that how conversation has to be based on our beliefs that lead to our practices. You know, you and I know Jamin Fraser, and I love that he says that our behavior is at the end of the assembly line of the factory of beliefs and story. Mm. So I think our culture now knows that there's a problem. We're starting to, particularly in our kids, if you're a parent, you know that there's a problem and you're concerned about it. You want to change that in yourself and in those you love but we don't know how to do it. So we need to examine our story and we need some really practical, simple ways to make a start. And that's what what I call making space or being a space maker.
0: And that's what we're going to talk about right now. We're going to talk about how we can unclutter our life and, and be a space maker. Before we get into that, I just want to tell you that there was something that made me laugh out loud in your book when you were hanging your painting, you were up on a ladder, and you moved it a fraction too far, and your brain just kind of went, oh, that's okay, I can just press Control-Z. I've had exactly that. And I laughed because I related to it so strongly. My moment of that, and I think I've kind of half had it a few times, but I had a real moment of it where I was writing on a piece of paper and I I did something or I changed a diagram that I didn't want. And I my mind just went, oh, no problem. Control Z. And yeah. then it sort of took me a second to realize there's no Control Z. You're writing... On a piece Real of paper, life. you idiot. But that was <laughs> yeah. a great example of how our brain has been re- rewired. I mean, you yeah. and I spend 10 hours a day practicing tech. Of course it has.
1: Yeah. And so I missed, yeah, my, my painting went skew whiff and I instantly started to twitch my fingers. It's amazing. I mean, my, my son will hate me saying this, but uh, we were praying with him like a few days ago and my wife said, okay, I'm going to pray about what I'm thankful for. So she said something. And then we said to my son, is there anything you want to say? You know, and he goes, Dear God, uh, he goes Control C, Control V, Amen, and I just thought, Oh, that's brilliant! Like you know, <laughs> copy and paste. In our days, we would have yeah gone Ditto. Or I'm thankful yep. for the same thing. And I just, I just love how digital like thinking just embeds everything. So hey, good on him.
0: It is embedded. That is funny. I'm going to use that. All right, now. So we've talked about the paradigm, the world we're operating in, and it's really nice to to sit sort of you know we live there every day, but it's nice to go over it and sort of pick it apart a little bit but tell us what we can do about it. Before we hit record, Daniel, you were saying it's really, you know, some of the some of the actions, some of the practices uh, really seem quite daunting to people and you like to build them up to stuff, to get people to start small. So how about you hit us with your, I don't know, you can make up the number, your top five or, or so practices where we can declutter and make space in our life.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Look, As a physiotherapist, I'm quite aware that If someone came to me and they said, I've got shoulder pain and you just give them an exercise, well then you're just shooting for something and hoping it will work. You know, you don't know if it's bursitis or instability or yeah, like you, you need to diagnose the problem. So even before I gave the top five, I would suggest a digital audit where people spend a day or maybe two days and and become really conscious that writing down or reflecting on their, their habitual digital habits from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed, you know, what do you do when you wake up? I'm sure many of you, you know, like I do, or I did grab my phone and I don't, for me, it was email, for my wife, it's, you know, social media, for others, it's the news. Is that the way you want to start the day? You'll have some fantastic habits and you'll think, yeah, it makes sense to be communicating with, you know, my family or obviously working in a productive way using tech. So I'm not saying it's just to find out your bad habits, but if you're not aware of what your habits are and how your habits Align with your longer term values. Well, then it's really hard to work out what you should shift first. So that's my caveat. But in Create term, a
0: true picture. It's a bit like, yeah, like keeping a food diary where, for someone who wants to lose weight.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and just work out. Look, what are the dumbest habits that you do? Try to work out what the story is behind those dumb habits. And well, then I do that, and then try to shift them. You know, so start with that awareness. But look, in terms of some stuff, let, the hardcore practice. I'll start with the hardest one. I reckon, but it's the best one is the digital day off or, you know, the digital Sabbath. So you have, I have one day every week from Friday night to Saturday night. That's mine where I have 24 hours where I don't look at my phone. I put away my screens and I actually just do a whole lot of other things. And for many people, when I say that, they're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, how could you possibly, you know, I've had people get angry even when (laughs) I suggest that. And that's interesting because it's a
0: bad sign for them.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, but I think what's happening is people are thinking about what they'll miss out on. You know, what if I missed out on a text or missed out on what was happening in, you know, in the Ukraine or don't know what the weather is. But I think about it the other way. I I put out a calendar and from the moment I wake to the moment I go to bed, I'm online. I'm constantly connected. I'm using I'm practicing the internet. But one day a week I have this white box where there's no tech and I I wake up and I get to I don't know cook bacon and eggs with my kids if I feel like it. and we I go for a ride or I change the wood or I play board games. i I get to experience with my family and also alone when I need it just a whole lot of neurological patterns and experiences that actually statistically make me way happier and healthier than more, I don't know, you know more Netflix. Twitter, more exactly. Facebook. And so I'm not missing out on anything. It's just hard to do because of our story. but, Because that's so hard, I I do have some very specific how-tos in terms of planning that. But one tip is that on a simple, simple note, you could, for example, charge your phone outside of your bedroom and not start and end the day with technology. And that's a game changer so that you can start with your own mind, your own thoughts and not the thoughts of, I don't know, whoever happens to be speaking on a podcast or whatever else you're listening to to start and end the day with pause and God forbid, even end the day by talking to the person in bed next to you, rather than both talking to people who aren't in bed with you through social media. It's just so different. My wife and I just realized, actually, we talk more with each other because they're precious spots. Those, you know, let's talk before we go to sleep. Like you lose those moments. So uh, starting and ending the day without tech is a really smart move for everyone. I noticed in, in your in your book where
0: you, you did a, a bit of a dummy kind of diary and and audit that you start the day with an alarm from your phone and the you know the alternative is using an old fashioned alarm clock and I, I had to laugh because even that sort of caught me off guard because I was like, oh wow, now we rely so heavily on our on our silent alarms. So mm. my wife and I have both got the watch that connects to the phone. And then so when my alarm goes off in the morning, it just sort of vibrates on my on my wrist and she doesn't get woken up. So there's that kind of dependency there. But I love the idea of not starting. I mean, the first thing that I'm conscious of when I open my eyes in the morning is tech. Yeah. Because it's tech that's waking me up.
1: Oh, and that look from a mental perspective. I mean, just if the mind can't rest and reflect, it's just a game changer and I just think it's so important to start the day thinking your own thoughts, reflecting, meditating, praying, reflecting on the day, just not filling it instantly with worry and work and want, all the stuff that comes through media. And if you need to wake up, yeah, sure, buy a Fitbit that vibrates that doesn't have you know Twitter on it. I mean, you can still use tech to wake up, but the yeah. point is don't start with the internet or don't start with new media. Don't have it uh,
0: flash up your to-do list for, as you're alarm yeah, exactly. for waking up.
1: That's horrible. today. Uh, and the stupid thing is, that. I mean, I, I charge my phone outside of my bedroom. And the first thing I do still is want to run to my phone and check my email. So, I mean, I'm still hopeless, but it's trying to recognize why am I doing that and- and it's Degrees of hopelessness. Yeah, degrees <laughs> of hopelessness. Uh, look, I probably won't get through five because of the time, but um, a third one I really love, which is pretty simple, is a digital free meal. And I think that is like from a research perspective, and again, I like my practices not just to be good ideas, but for them to have basis in research that if you look at the benefit of eating as a family around a table, let's say you have kids, but it also works for you know couples and even works for flatmates, eating around a table without tech and talking, it's just so valuable. I mean, the research says that a 12-year-old girl who eats regularly with her family around a table and talks about their day, they'll end up having better university entrance scores. uh, They'll end up having less mental health issues. They'll have reduced debt. They'll have better jobs, less addictions to marijuana. They won't be pregnant as a teenager. Younger kids end up with better numeracy and literacy skills. Like in fact, Charles Duhigg, who's a habit-based author looked at all this research and there's quite a lot on eating as a family or connecting in terms of social spaces and he basically called this a keystone habit that like exercise you do one thing eat without tech around a table together every week every day sorry and unlocks an enormous amount of other benefits well beyond the habit itself and what's brilliant cuz i can't cook i used to be able to cook but i got lazy right it doesn't matter if you cook you know if you're you eating 2 dollar woolies pizza that tastes like cardboard or if you're eating organic broccolini like the benefits are the same It's about banter and in-person, face-to-face connection. And as simple as that sounds, I mean, you and I are, I would imagine, similar generation. But I was speaking to a group of 20-something-year-old, very, very smart, global managers, or at least global professionals in a a company in the U.S. And I just mentioned this habit. And one of the girls said, ah, my flatmate and I have just started eating together on a Wednesday around a table. And it's so fun. And it's like, it's the 1960s. <laughs> and and then everyone was like, wow, we should try that. That sounds really good. And I was just thinking, you've never eaten regularly with your families and you've wow. never eaten without tech. So this is iGen, right? And so yeah. the loss of health and relationships and humanity when you can't interact without a mediated screen is really quite significant and it's beautiful to simply relearn that habit so in the book i talk about questions that you can ask like what's your high low buffalo so what's your high point from the day Mm. what's your low point from the day and what's a buffalo or something interesting or curious you know it's obviously an american term but just start by learning to talk together and hear about each other's day reflect on the meaning of your highs and lows and allow yourself to experience the joy and the sadness of life together, some simple questions and that digital free meal can really change a lot. And so, again, space making is not about doing a lot. It's just about having the right habits where you disconnect for the right amount of time in and amongst that total overload that we're going to have as part of just everyday professional living. That
0: whole idea of sitting and talking with your family as you eat a meal, And the idea that we don't do that, and there might be people who have never heard of that, they do it once and think it's amazing. Look, I'm committing to everyone right here now, that will be an every night thing for my family forever. For as long as I'm sitting down with my family to eat dinner, we will not have tech at the dinner. If it's that kind of keystone habit, as you talk about, that has Mm. knock-on consequences, I mean, this is the difference between people who have a life of wellness and feel fulfilled is that they can take advice like that and act on it. It's like eating healthy and doing exercise and all of the other stuff that we know is true and good for us that are are just simply the opposite of easy falling into trap-like habits. Mm. I think that's such an important one, Daniel. I love that one. That I mean, out of everything that we've talked about – If we just do one thing, if we just remember that one thing, that'd be amazing. But combined with the others that you talked about, like doing a digital audit, have a digital day off. Just one day a week, one 24 hour block a week. You can do that. Charge your phone outside the bedroom and talk to the person you're going to sleep with at night. That's a really good thing. And the digital free meal, not once a week. I'm committing to every night. Oh, I want to believe that I could tell you honestly in 10 years' time that my current eight, five, and four-year-old kids won't ever have a phone at the dinner table because, as you said, Keystone Habit has so many knock-on consequences.
1: Mm. Look, that's brilliant. I mean, it's not about rejecting tech. It's just about being human. And look, at the end of our life, we are not going to look back and think, gee, I wish I spent more time on Minecraft, I don't know, or Do you know, like it's, it's those moments of eating together and hearing about each other's day. It's those mundane, but human moments that matter where we go to the beach and we actually focus on our kids running around getting messy and I don't know, getting wet in their clothes when we didn't bring bathers or when we're just going for a walk and you're paying attention to stuff, you know, like it's, if you think about the moments that really matter, they're almost never on a screen or if they are on a screen it's the screen is a medium but you're interacting and it's the human connection with people at your side the research is very very clear people who have strong social bonds who connect in person with each other on a regular basis they live far longer they fight cancer better they survive better they have better mental health outcomes and none of that is replaced like none of that's replicated with social media so we just let's just remember how beautiful it is to be a human and do more of that in and around technology as we need it and that's really what the space making message is and to have a plan for how to actually do that in a world where it's not that easy anymore
0: that is a fantastic place to end it daniel c i can't thank you enough for coming on the team guru podcast i loved our book and i loved our chat thank you
1: thanks very much see you dave
0: And that was Daniel C. Awesome topic, awesome book, awesome chat. It was one of those ideas I thought I understood pretty well until I dived into the Space Maker concept. If we get lazy and ignore the truth, this whole technology thing is going to be pretty bad for all of us. But if we're wise, deliberate, and disciplined, we can squeeze the technology for the value it offers and at the same time live a happy and fulfilled human life. I loved his tips. To start with, do a digital audit. It's like keeping a food diary. It might be ugly, but at least you know what you're dealing with. Then, take a digital day off. Yep, 24 hours every week. Plan it and land it. And wait for the benefits to flow. Next, charge your phone outside your bedroom and maybe even chat with the person you share a bed with. And finally, and this is a lot for me, Have digital free meals with your family. It's a keystone activity that has all sorts of benefits in the short, medium and long term. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Daniel on the Lessons Learn page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.